we're on Hollywood Boulevard again. A special Hollywood Boulevard. A special one. So let me announce our special guest, Alyssa Marr. Woohoo! Hi. Back. Hi, Alyssa. Um, so <laughs> so thanks we were gone last week because um due to covid and covid protocols we've had to reschedule multiple of uh the shows we had planned on seeing towards the end of the theater season um and so the bad news is we had to see the shows during the time we were recorded. <laughs> not that the, the bad news isn't that we had the to see the shows. The bad news is we saw the shows. It was not a period. Yeah. Um <laughs> But the good news is we are going to talk about a lot of them now. Uh, so Alyssa was my date for all of them. And um, I don't know, Alyssa, where where would you like to start? This is, by the way, going to be a very theater-centric podcast. We're going to touch yes, on a lot of shows and a lot of themes going on in the world of theater. Um, so why don't we start with the one I liked the most? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, good. Let's sandwich it. With Romeo and Bernadette. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm surprised that that's the one you like the most, I think. You know, I think it it was cute. It had a clever premise. It was an enjoyable Saturday afternoon. It's two hours with intermission. Like, what's not to like? The guys were cute, you know. Hey. Well, they were. They yeah, were. I'm, I'm not, to, not arguing. Selling it to the people. So is this okay? So tell now. I've only. I actually only just heard of this like today. Yeah. In passing. Yeah. So, so me, it's had a long give me life. Heads up on this. This tell is. Me, tell me what's up. So it's a really fun light musical that I think probably started making its way into theaters twenty or so years ago, um, and almost had a run two years ago right before the pandemic shut everything down so it finally got a chance to open here off broadway it is um the story is such that romeo is essentially transported from the verona of the 16th century to 1960s brooklyn where he meets a new love named bernadette and that is the that is what Aly- Alyssa right before we started talking about was referring to, uh, um, you know, her ethnicity. Um, but yeah, so um, it's and then, so we have a bunch of Brooklyn stereotypes going on as Romeo is sort of like meeting a bunch of crazy um, characters involving two warring Brooklyn families. Um, in the 1960s as he falls in love with Bernadette. I mean, it's not going to make sense. It's not a realistic show. It's a very light show. But I actually found it, you know, highly diverting and and very amusing. And in many cases, really well acted. The performers are very good, especially some of the handsome men that my fiancé was talking about. Continue. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like really cute and kind of kicky and a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. And that's very refreshing, too. And holy shit, I'm just like looking at the creative team, Mark Saltzman, the book and the lyrics. He wrote A My Name is Alice. I yeah, had no idea he yeah. co-wrote that. And he was with The Village Gate and long time working with the Muppets. And like, gosh, he's got like some serious cred, this guy. Yeah, he does. And, you know, it's like a type of show you don't see anymore because commercial off-Broadway doesn't really exist. Um, yeah, I was going to say, added- yeah, this is like 
one of those. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. chasing like the Tony and Tina's wedding vibe yeah. of your. Yeah, it sort of reminded me of like all those like off Broadway musicals that were around in like the late '90s, early 2000s, yeah. like like Xana Don't or mm, like um, yep. Bat Boy, you know those type of shows that we don't get anymore because there's <sighs> they're just not financially feasible. Yeah, the one with um, Tori Skelling's first husband that I can never remember the name of that my office worked on. Which... My Tori Spelling? <laughs> <laughs> Tori Spelling's first husband, was it like Mark Shamos? Was that his name? Or like, no, yeah, that wasn't his name. What was his name? What? Oh my I gosh, see his I face. To... Right? Um, the one she had the $3 million wedding and then divorced him. And then him divorced like him like in eight months. months later or something? That's yes, why Candy yes, doesn't... yes. That's why Candy doesn't speak with her. Charlie Shan- Shan- Shanian. Charlie yeah. Shanian. Oh, I didn't even remember did. that was his name. Yeah. And it was with a C. And he did what he did. He did. He did. What was that show he did? Um, I'm going to do off Broadway. Like it still comes up when you Google it. Like, hang on here. Maybe baby it's you. Oh, I don't know that, but that sounds exactly like the same vibe that you get from Romeo and Bernadette. Yeah. It was like this two hander. It Well, it was a two hander. It was a total confection. It was really, really sweet. It was not my cup of tea. Everybody loved it. <laughs> what was the one, not I Love You and You're Perfect Now Change, the other one that I think Joe DiPietro wrote? Um, that, like, Colin Hanlon was in? Oh, I can sort of remember. Hmm. But anyway, yeah, these shows, like, don't exist anymore. And it was fun to to go to something like this oh i love you because yeah, so uh, who produced this then if it would do you, do you eric know? krebs yeah oh yeah i think eric krebs produced maybe baby it's you <laughs> yeah this is an eric show yeah okay and look he's you know it's cute like it's cute you know, like, I don't know what else to say. It's just like, you know, there's some cheesy groaner lines. Like, the Brooklyn accents are a mess. Oh. <laughs> Judy McLean is the only one who gets off scot-free. Well, she's the one you the said that does like what sounds like a, an authentic and not a theatrical yeah, Brooklynese like, kind of thing. Like, I know Brooklyn accents, and um, they're like, ter- they're they're just like so... If I was more, if it was, if I was like really uptight, I'd be offended. The Italian stuff is like ridiculous. Um, uh, and I'm Italian from Brooklyn, so I can say these things. But, you know, in the end, it's like, it's a feel good show. Some of the songs are nice. Um, the cast is really good. Like maybe if there was more money involved. I was just going to say, yeah, if you, if you kind of gussied it up a little bit with with some money and you know like some updates to the book and maybe some of the the score yeah like it's the kind of show that you could do everywhere yes definitely yeah yeah it doesn't have a large cast um it could definitely 
I could definitely see it being done in like community theaters and, and regional yeah, regionals. Yeah. Um, and one of the other actors I wanted to give a special shout out to Michael Noter Donato, I'm hoping is how you say it. He's one of uh, the Brooklyn Italian guys, um, but he was particularly good and has a particularly good voice. I think he's literally Brooklyn guy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I think that is his name or does he have two <laughs> names? Yeah. He's Dino and Brooklyn guy, but Dino, and the guy yeah. who plays Romeo, whose name I can't remember. And it's Nikita Burstein. Burstein. Yeah. Um, the cast is giving it the they're all. And, they are. You know, the show keeps saying pre-Broadway run. I don't know. No, I think I, that I think that that's like Eric. You know Eric's version of wishful thinking. That's his like uh, Barnum yeah, like, type. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's do something yeah. that he would just do. That sort of like pre-Broadway run, like you know, because they think it's gonna sell. Like the producers think it's gonna sell. Like their pre-Broadway run, right? Like no. Okay. In Transit made it to Broadway. First Date made it to Broadway. I I if they're gonna really bring it to Broadway, they'd have they'd probably have to recast some of the roles. You know, some of the younger guys could be played by. The Derek Klenas of the world. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> slight names. Yeah. But yeah, I en- I enjoyed it, and I'm I'm glad to hear that. Um, so did my fiance. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it was you know, it's sort of in addition to being a crazy time in the New York theater world right now because it was the big crunch at the end of the season. It, you know, it was also just. We had all the rescheduling to do, and it was like, well, I know this show is not on the radar of a lot of theater goers, but we kind of want to add it in. Um, and I'm glad that I did for, you know, all the reasons we've said. Right. Of course. So that cool. is playing That's playing at Theater 555, which is all the way at the west end of um, 42nd Street, right before you hit the Hudson. But it's a nice space. It is a nice space. Also, it's the only musical I've ever seen with Zeppelin references. So, is that right? I think so. What else would have referenced all Zeppelin? of the other musicals we just named? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. This is a good point. I think that it might be the only one that's referenced. I'm with you, Alyssa. I think it's probably the only one that references. It Zeppelin. also references the neighborhood I grew up in. So uh, there is oh. that. So which, that was nice. Which hood is that? Can Sheepshead I Bay. Oh, Sheepshead Bay. Okay. <laughs> Shout out Sheepshead Bay. Shout, Shout out Sheepshead Bay. I wanted to be like, woo, but I didn't. Super <laughs> respectful. Like, that's another thing. Like, the the Brooklyn geography in the show is a little dubious. Because um, they're like, we'll just go over to the Brooklyn Museum. I was like, this is not taking place on Eastern Parkway. I can tell you that much in the 60s. Like... <laughs> Oh my god! Is that, so it's set in the '60s. It's not modern. Yeah, it's right. Okay. It's not in now. So there's no like cell phone devices or like Instagram humor or anything like that, which there would have to be if it was a contemporary world. So no, you get like the classical world of like the red sauce joints and jokes, that sort of thing from the 1960s. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. So Alyssa, okay, if so that's our else? if that's our critics so, pick of the week, where do we go from here? Maybe the show I liked the second most do, and the show that if Romeo and Bernadette had the most Zeppelin references, 
this show had the most Phil Silvers references, <laughs> and that's Mr. Saturday Night. <laughs> okay. Again, so, not the one I thought she was going to rank second. Continue. Well, also because, like, the other two I have the most to say about. Mm, and do we? Um, yes. Because one of them I think I may have liked more than Mr. Saturday Night. I just have a lot to say. Yeah, Mr. Saturday Night. So I'm going to guess that, Karen, you've never seen the movie that Billy Crystal did that I don't think I've even seen the movie, no. It's not, no. My, it's, it's not my I jam, right? Either. Like, it's, it's not my jam. I don't think most people even know it exists at this point. No. I, of course, saw it in the theater the weekend it came out. So there I you didn't are. know about it. And I, like, <laughs> I, like, am pretty good with movies. And I, like, I don't think I knew it at all. Really? It was a, it was a big yeah. bomb. It was, so it was... Right after City Slickers, it's like the height of like Billy Crystal's fame. It's right after a couple years after when Harry met Sally, in the middle of him doing all of the Oscar hosting, and it was his film directorial debut. Um, and it's like a big love letter to all of like the Borschbelt and Catskills comics, yeah. and he plays a really irascible character in his older years, and with a lot of flashbacks to how he sort of screwed up his career and his relationships, particularly with his brother and manager. And David Paymer played the brother. They had also just worked together in City Slickers, and David Paymer actually got an Oscar nomination for Mr. Saturday Night, which is kind of the only thing that keeps it on the map um, at this point at all. Uh, and David Paymer and Billy Crystal are now in this adaptation. But they were like late 30s, 40 when they did the movie. And now they're like 800 years old <laughs> doing David the show. David Paymer is younger than I thought. He's not even 70 anyway. Um, it's the, the And Billy Crystal and the other two script writers that did the, the movie have worked together on the book for Mr. Saturday Night. Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who also did like A League of Their Own and Parenthood. They were great film writers in their heyday, but none of them have any idea how to really put together a coherent yeah. story for this. And, oh, all, no, and none really? of the threads really work. Um, and, you know, only half of our cast can really sing. Like, it's definitely when half. people talk... <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the the women in the show have voices. They did. <laughs> but not the men. Well, I think I yeah. like the show a little bit more than Alyssa did. Though Some, I agree. Someone, someone took Randy Graff's Summer by Her Stride. Ra- Randy Graff plays Billy Crystal's long-suffering wife. And Randy Graff is really a great and under-heralded actress of the stage. She originated Fontaine and Broadway uh, and, and that's what Alyssa was referring to. She won a She's Tony for City of Angels. She's actually the best part of the show. Yes, her voice has seen perhaps better days but it's at least nice oh. to know she had one. I mean, she's what, mid-60s, 66, something like that? Um, yeah, I think we looked her up and I, I forget. It's, some, it's something around there. Um, I mean, the, the, the plot is the, the problem but also it's the movie focuses more on the rivalry, the fractured relationship between Billy Crystal and David Paymer, the brothers. And the movie, it's like, it gives equal attention to the fact that Billy Crystal wasn't great to his brother, to his wife, and also to his daughter. But none of those individual stories and relationships are given enough to really hold the show up. And well... And like the songs which Jason Robert Brown wrote with Amanda Green, which also is, you know, like theater royalty. Uh, it's yeah. like all of it is poorly conceived. 
Well, the thing about this show, and again, I didn't see the movie, but, and this is what they're selling it on as well, and I guess this is what the audience wants. I mean, the audience was like eating it up. Um, it's essentially like Billy Crystal's love letter to himself. Um, <laughs> it, like he's, it, it, it is. That's like, very fair. You know, I love it. The show is built around him. Like the night we were supposed to go originally, they said he had the flu and they canceled it outright. Like nobody's going to see his understudy. I don't even, they don't even list an understudy in the program. He you can't do an was, understudy right now for big stars. Right. Like you just can't. I mean, well, you can because you have to, but no one will come. There's no point. No one's, no one's going to come. Yeah. yeah. Might but as they, well just cancel, right? Yeah, yeah. They um but like there's no show without him. Like he's playing a version of himself, like the jokes are tailored to him. Um everything and even like the story is tailored for him to have a W at the end. Like we're supposed to root for Billy Crystal and this is Billy Crystal and it's a love letter to Billy Crystal from Billy Crystal. Um and he's like good, you know. At what he does because it's his shtick. You know, he's a serviceable singer. Um, and the songs aren't, you know, you know, he's not singing Maria from West, from West Side Story. You know, <laughs> like, um, it just, like, doesn't have a reason to exist, especially as a musical. Yeah. Well, I just remember thinking, well, that's weird right yeah, like when it was too. announced yeah. like it just I was kind too. of like you know it's just this kind of like weird blip in movie history that he did right. mr saturday night right and it just sort of doesn't seem like the type of movie that you would go well now that's a broadway show right no, it's not. no and it's not <laughs> and the weird thing is and i have no like i have a weird recollection of them tr- announcing that he was working on turning 700 sundays into a musical which i guess is a Bronx Tale. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was his one-man show about the time right, he spent with right. his father. And then when they announced this, I was like, oh, what? And, you know, it's like, there's only a cast of, I think, eight people. The set is minimal. It feels, I mean, no shade to the Paper Mill Theater because they do amazing stuff, Paper Mill Playhouse, but it feels like a show you'd see on in Paper Mill. Hmm. Um, it reminds me of, like, Another show that I liked more that was at the Nederlander too, and also had a score by Jason Robert Brown, um, Honeymoon in Vegas, Mm. you know, but it, I don't know, it just doesn't give its, it like doesn't answer like the why. It's like, why is this on stage? Why is this on Broadway? (laughs) Yeah. And the plot itself, there's nothing that urgent. Because it's basically, in his older age, he gets, like, the second chance to maybe find fame in his career. and But there's no real obstacle, and there's no real... There aren't rocks being thrown at him, because it's not really like, okay, and if you don't get cast in the thing, you don't lose everything that you've had. Your life seems to have been fine, so, it, like, none of it really matters. It's literally just a platform for Billy to be Billy. But I don't yeah. know anyone who would see this show and not want exactly that. Yeah, and right. you know, there's been a, I've seen a lot of people online and, and conversations with friends who've seen it who are like, uh, I don't really think I was the target audience because I'm not middle aged and older. I'm not Jewish. I'm not, you know, I don't know who Toadie Fields and Phil Silvers are. Um, 
Like, I don't get the references. And yeah, the references are dated. Like, Gene Shallot. <laughs> figures in yeah like, well this is actually like the funniest part of us seeing the show it starts off with like billy crystal's wife is watching the emmys and it's set in 94 yeah 94 and they're like they may name somebody and then they name myrna loy and doug and i go oh <laughs> <laughs> and it's like well I doubt anyone else my age is like, oh, Myrna Loy. Like, it, it's just, it was, you know, it's, it, it knows who its target audience is. It knows what the audience wants. Um, and the audience seemed to really like it the day I went. Um, yeah, which the was day the day we I went, went to. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the day we went. Um, but, I, you know, it's not going to, you know, he's probably going to do it for a couple more months and it'll close. Um, yeah. Like, it'll never be heard from again. because Which it's we not say this about a lot of these big movie to stage things. Like, you, you come up with an idea that you think you can move to Broadway, but it's all high concept and it's low content. No one is going to, yeah. none of these songs set the world on fire and no one does these shows ever again. So add yeah. this to the list. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing I was talking to. I was actually talking to a colleague today, um, you know, about, you know, the, the Tony Awards. And, you know, I, I had mentioned something about the, you know, the road producers were coming in town and, mm-hmm. you know, and weren't they all going to sort of like vote for Hugh Jackman, right? Because they're they're looking after the stars. And he was like, well, no, because, you know, they're looking for shows that are going to go like they're, they're travel yeah, forever. You know, they're, they're yeah. Travel, travel forever. And they want that Tony Award stamped on it. And I was like, I mean, we, we can save this for another part of the conversation. But I was like, I actually think that the touring, like the tour circuit, like needs a new business model that needs to change. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly be, if you we're seeing the Broadway, like if there's going to be more of these Broadway shows coming up that are, let's face it, struggling at the box office. Okay. Like, because they don't have a Hugh Jackman or they don't have a Billy Crystal. Cause I don't know, like how is Billy Crystal doing sales wise? It's not doing as well. It's not like selling like gangbusters. No. Like I thought it would, um, you know, the Netherlands is not a huge theater, so it's probably not going to make Hugh Jackman money, but it's not, it's not. A, I don't think it's a big sellout. And I was like, "Oh, this is going to print money." Um, I think everything's going to print money. Um, no, you I'm think a it- very bad. I'm a bad judge of ever. I'm always like, "Come from away, what a flop!" Yeah, <laughs> and it's still going. <laughs> and it's still going. Um, but I don't think he's like bringing them in like they thought he would. But it's also like, like Doug said, it's like who knows this movie. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, he, we mentioned, I think, um, in conversation, the Tootsie musical adaptation before. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a huge, iconic movie. And that couldn't, that couldn't sell. sell. You know, the yeah. Pretty Woman musical couldn't sell. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Doubtfire couldn't sell. Right. It's on, and let me say, it's on free form every weekend. <laughs> we were at my parents' house last weekend. It was on twice. <laughs> and... People my age, my generation, millennials love that movie. But, you know, there's a sense of like. But they want to see Robin Williams in 1993 doing Mrs. Doubtfire. They don't necessarily need to see 
a different version with a different guy and different songs yeah. and all of that. Yeah. yeah. And I also wonder, is there like a sense of like nostalgia, like for like millennials with like, don't, don't touch that. That's my, you know, they're like that. No, sense of like, it's, oh my God, it's, don't I think know. it's the opposite you know? because I think okay. they don't know anything. Hey. No, I mean, actually, I think there's a sense of with millennials in particular, because I there's like with movies like Hocus Pocus is one of them. And I, and I like Hocus Pocus um, where people are like, I watched this when I was little and it's amazing and you cannot tell me otherwise. Like, yeah, yeah. For me, like I get mad when people are like start nitpicking Home Alone, like I yeah. nitpick Home Alone. But, like, for fun, where people are like, Kevin's a psychopath, like, this is ridiculous, like, these parents, and it's like, it's Home Alone, like, shut the hell up, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there's, like, that, like, millennials are very protective, whereas, like, I think Gen Z is, like, pokes holes in everything and has no attachment to anything anymore. But also um, acts like, but but can't separate the thing from the context around when it was made and how it was made, because... They only view things through like an impatient twenty twenty two lens, whether it was made in nineteen sixty two or ninety two or twenty ten or whatever. It's like the day they discover it is the day that it was meant to be, right. you know, executed. And it's like, no, that's not really how also, this stuff works. The thing is, and so, especially in Mrs. Doubtfire, like when we saw it, it was like people were waiting for line for like certain lines, you know, like, you know, these movie and musical adaptations are so now that people just wait, you know, to hear like big mm-hmm. mistake huge or like it was a run by fruiting. And that's what, why they fail, I think, because there's no character to them. It's but like, I also we, think they're restricted by whoever is green lighting. The property, you know, like Beetlejuice, keep... had specific parameters. Like you had to replicate X, Y, Z, and you had to include this line and this beat yeah. and whatever it was, that sort of thing. Although that like took its own liberties. It's but it's funny yeah they found they did find a way to kind of reinvent some of it. Yes, because we've had this conversation recently. Like Doug and I literally just finished watching Eight and a Half before we started recording, which the Fellini the movie, base, the basis oh, for the musical Nine, and we were like, this is what we do. <laughs> We were like, there's no, like, no one would ever allow a big growing musical to be like, I'm going to take this, like, foreign film from the 60s, which was, like, 20 years before, and, like, totally adapt it, make it our own, but you'll have the bones of this movie. It's like, now it's like, we want to see ghosts on stage, and we want you to be faithful to ghosts. Right. (laughs) Like, we right. want it to be the movie that we watch on Saturday afternoons when nothing else is on. And that's why they don't run beyond six months. Like, that's why they're not going to be revived. Yeah. They're not going to do the encores, and who the hell knows if they'll be encores in 30 years, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, no one is going to do the Sister Act musical, and no one is going to do, well, I don't know, Heather's seems to have more of a life than I might have thought, but you get the idea. Yeah. yeah. Right, 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 right. So what's third on your list, Alyssa? I guess Funny Girl, which I did I did actually like more than Mr. Saturday Night. Karen, I know um, you had wanted to talk about this. This was one of the ones we were going to talk about last time, but 
had to reschedule because our one of our leading actors got COVID in, so we had to sit it out for another ten days. Why did I want? Why Why did I want to talk about Funny Girl? Because the reviews were bad. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's... Yeah, those reviews were bad. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, here's the thing. And then, Alyssa, I'll let you kind of run with it. But Funny Girl had never been revived in on Broadway, I think at all, maybe in the States. I don't know. Since never. its storied, mm-hmm. like, initial run in the 60s, which made a start of Barbara Streisand. Um, and it's always been talked about over time like well maybe this woman could do funny girl maybe this woman could be fanny bryce there have been a lot of names there have been a lot of talented women who could have uh reinvented that role um but there was always the specter of barbara streisand truly one of the great the greatest stars in and and able to transcend from musical theater to film with that one part and be a star in both um like the, the there's just so much expectation for if you're going to do this you've got to be so good you are the next Barbara Streisand which is the next major star the next singular talent the the likes of which we have rarely seen in six decades and so we just haven't had the show um and and then it was announced this year that we would finally get that revival so I'm curious where, you know, I mean, well, Alyssa, you said that you liked it better than Mr. Saturday Night, not necessarily liked it, but Doug, I'm getting a feeling you did not. No, I still like it. The truth is the show has so much luster around it and the film works so well that you kind of forget it's a very imperfect show with a very Mm -hmm. flawed book. Um, Okay. And so... Even though Harvey Firestein came on and and updated the book a little bit for this revival, the show is it's really either going to sink or swim based on the actress that you have playing Fanny Bryce, no matter whatever else you do with the show. And after all the chances and all of the predictions and all of the wants and wishes of who could ever step in and play Fanny Bryce, we got Beanie Feldstein. <laughs> In what? What you said that? <laughs> I know that is really funny. <laughs> and what has to be labeled a vanity production, the likes of which I thought, you know, the narrative was like we're Billy Crystal. Uh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, the likes of which we haven't seen since Mr. Saturday Night. But like, but, okay, so, but, so we okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, so. So she needed to be really good, is all I was going to say. <laughs> and, you know, Subtext. I, I really liked her in, in Hello, Dolly. She was only Minnie Faye, which is a very small role, like a supporting role. But I thought she's really charming. Like, I've liked her in other things. But I didn't think she could do it. And were you pleasantly surprised? Or were she you like, yeah, no, I knew this. She couldn't do it. And I just want to preface this by saying she looks very young. She's 28. She looks very young. And it's, and she sounds very young. And for someone who looks very much younger for her age and sounds younger for her age, I sympathize. Like, mm. <laughs> so I, like, give her a pass on that. But she has real most famous most talented senior in the high school production energy like uh, she it's not it's not 
it's not a professional musical performance. I'm sorry. It's not. Yeah. And, you know, like there are, there is a big like social media following that was really rooting for her and really Mm -hmm. hoping that like critics were really just going to go gaga and that this would be considered a star making event. I know that's probably what Beanie Feldstein herself wanted too. I think what you finally saw as those opening night reviews uh, came out is that it was just so patently obvious that she didn't have what it took to be a leading role in a Broadway musical, let alone one with a a fairly demanding score, like the one Mm -hmm. this has, that it was like, I mean, why, you know, like why, why kick someone when they're already down? You know, everyone was sort of like trying to go out of the way to not say it or be too impolite about the fact that, she really can't sing. She really can't move. She really doesn't have what it takes, which is a lost know, opportunity for everyone who wants this thing to succeed. And I thought like our audience was on her side. Yeah, like, I were... think so too. And that's and, what I want from an audience. If I have to choose, right. I'd rather have it be the audience that comes in and whether they realize or not that maybe someone isn't great or that the show isn't great, they have a great time and they cheer them on. I prefer There'll be that. like some there. There's like a level of forgiveness because they just are sort of like they they just want to root the person on. And I they, think they yeah, and they and they the want show. to enjoy themselves because they yeah. this is Funny Girl. It's a musical. They're there with friends or relatives or whatever, and they want to have a good time. They want to hear the songs they know, and and God bless them. And you know the thing, like the reason I enjoyed it is like it's a big lavish production. We haven't gotten many of those. We don't have many of those anymore. No. On Broadway. You know, it's a show I, I've seen the movie, but I never saw the show. So it was nice to see, um, it was, you know, a Sunday matinee. It was fun. You know, it was just fun to see like a big lavish production. And I like had a good time. Um, you know, she doesn't like really ruin the show for me. She's just not great. And the thing is, it's like, and all the reviews said that, you know, she's not Barbara Streisand, but the ghost of Barbara Streisand was still alive, but the metaphorical <laughs> like lingers over everything Beanie yeah. Feldstein does. Like every line delivery, it's like I can hear Barbara Streisand doing it. Like we have recordings of her doing these songs, and it's like, well, why do I? I could just sit home and listen to Barbara Streisand sing like I'm the greatest star. I don't have to hear Beanie like nasal her way through it you like, don't need like the second rate pr- performance yeah. when you can hear the original that it was so much better yeah clarion. i mean do you yeah. do you think that that was sort of like a, a do you think that was a directorial choice do you think beanie was like oh shit let me just do barbara and then everything will be fine well i, mean, I think I'm she's of... trying not to do barbara in some ways and and overcorrects in the other direction to try and go away from the iconic delivery yeah. of, of fame of well-known lines or songs or whatever and what i said to Alyssa when we saw it is you sometimes we take for granted the people that are really good at what they do because they make it look so easy you mm. might not necessarily i mean and we can say this about so many great people but let's just say with funny girl any any line that streisand has you sort of take it face value and then you don't really realize until you see someone do it and struggle with it or not mm-hmm. own it properly how hard it is to do the way it is when it's done right. And Streisand, though, she was a little bit younger, I think, when she did both the show and mm-hmm. the film A Funny Girl. 
exudes a more natural confidence even mm-hmm. when she's saying things and acting uh, self-deprecating, like there's a there's still an underlying sense of I know I got this, I know I'm good. Everything about the Beanie Feldstein performance, whether it's dialogue or in song or in attitude, feels like an audition. It feels like I'm trying to win you over. I desperately want you to think that I have what you want, uh, that I've got the goods. But she can't sell it. In a way, like, hearing you say this, like, kind of makes, I like, I feel bad because this is, like, it, this was going to be a career maker. And it sounds like it, like, like, it just sounds like she was miscast. Yeah. She, like, this was a bad idea. It is. And, and that's, I think, what the reviews, role. like, it's 100%, like, it rests on her and she just can't deliver. And I think no mm-hmm. one wanted to really be nasty about it because it's just unfortunate. The thing is, they've, like, created this, like, myth around her where it's, like, she auditioned and, you know, she had, you know, they keep telling us like she had a funny girl birthday party when she was three and she loved funny girl. And this was her destiny. Yeah. This was her destiny. And she auditioned over zoom. No way could she have auditioned. Like there's no plausible way they saw other girls for this role and was like, beanie's it. (laughs) That's the one. (laughs) There's no way. And you know, there's like rumors, her dad and her brother are producers. I looked over the playbill. I didn't see any evidence. Maybe they're just investors. I don't think that's true. Um, uh, for those who don't know, her older brother is Jonah Hill, and they have a, a very wealthy Beverly Hills father who was like accountant to the stars. Like, I did not know that part. I mean, I knew her brought who her yeah, brother yeah. was. I did not know that they were he, their dad was accountant to the stars. And yeah, I think no he idea. was like Guns and Roses accountant. Yeah, and like, like Dustin I'm Hoffman's Jesus. accountant. I think. Hmm. That's but I think. I don't I don't know how the production really came to be like why they chose her but I think like it was always going to be her um yeah this definitely wasn't uh we're bringing this back and let's find the best girl we can it this was always coming with her because there's no way there's just no way that for 50 years we've been told we can't have a funny girl revival because Streisand's shadow looms over it when we've had so many like Adina Menzel Shoshana Bean, Leslie Kritzer, Emily Ashford, like tons of people who could have done this role over the years. And we, they were like, never, Lauren Ambrose was cast. And they were like, no, there's no way. Nobody wants to touch Funny Girl with a 10 foot pole. But so to get this, it's like, well, this is disappointing. Cause yeah, this after is all this be time. Everyone's, yeah, this is going to be everyone's first exposure to the material. And I don't know, maybe they thought she'd bring in a younger audience, but because of Lady Bird and Booksmart. Book I don't know. I mean, I think the I show think... sells itself across generations. I think very few people don't know that name yeah. if you like musicals at all. Right. And like people are, it's doing well and people seem to like it. But it's like, again, people haven't been able to see Funny Girl. Most people probably didn't see the original production, so this is their chance. Yeah, like this is their opportunity yeah. to actually see it on on a Broadway stage. Yeah, so and I honestly think do it. many people were thinking this was the story of the theater season. And yeah. now I don't even know what the story of the theater season is. Quite frankly, I mean, it's... I guess that we came back, but um, <laughs> but beyond very... but beyond that, it's 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 sort of like a a hollow kind of uh, yeah. feeling season of of. Yeah you know, some successes, but no huge victories. 
in a lot of ways. I guess it's... Oh, go ahead, Alyssa. You know, and the show, the rest of, like... Like, Ramin Karimlu as Nikki Arnstein is, like, fine. He doesn't really need to do much. He looks good. He sounds good. But, like, he has no chemistry with her. And there's, like, totally mismatched because she's very young-looking. Um, I am man and you are little girl. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jane Lynch is, like, can has good comedic timing, but I don't really buy her as Mrs. Bryce. You know, she's like, she's like, looks like a really hearty pioneer woman. (laughs) (laughs) Like, of all the people they could have cast in that role. Jared Grimes is charming enough. He got the Tony nomination. He dances well, but like, there's nothing to that role. And they've enhanced the role for no reason, just because they cast Jared Grimes, who can tap really well. So he stops the show a few times to tap, but it takes you right out of the show. I mean, yeah, he's a great tapper, but what does that have to do with... But they're like, put all their eggs into his basket, I guess. Yeah. But he's the only one that's gotten any awards recognition. But for me, like, it's, you know, the reviews range from, like, we hate her, get her off the stage, how dare she, to, like, she's trying her best, and she's fine, but, you know, the show doesn't really work, and um, she's not Streisand. You know, they weren't, like, scathing. Right. You know, right. To me, it's strange how we can go into this afterwards, but like in depth, but how collectively the awards bodies have been like, no thank you to this production. Um, um almost entirely. Like, yeah. Doug and I were pretty convinced, even after the reviews, that like she was going to get nominated and maybe win because there's doesn't seem to be a real clear front runner and like. I think the three best actors, that actresses that were nominated in that category, it's like two of them are in closed shows and one of them is in like a show that people don't seem to get. Um, so it's like, yeah, if Beanie got in, I think she would have won. But like she didn't get nominated for anything, which I think is strange. Like, Yeah, because even critics groups side. tend to be kind of stupid and forgiving. Again, we can yeah. delve into that more. But yeah, they all... Uh, they all kind of shut it out. I guess it's like, if you can't sing, they, like, you know, the same thing happened to Elena Roger. It's happening with Katrina Lank, who's not nearly as bad um, as the other two. Yeah, Elena Roger was um, the, the the revival of Evita about a decade ago, who they were right. like, she's Argentinian, so she's so authentic, but then she couldn't sing. <laughs> well, that was like another situation where it's like, you we waited, you know, 30-odd years. 30 years for a revival where there were tons of people who could have done it, and this is what we get. Like, I mean, I I wish, like, ideally, like, my fanny would have been, and it would have been, like, a total event. But, like, Lady Gaga's out in the world. (laughs) She can act. She can sing. Yeah. She's not Jewish, but she's at least New York. Well, she probably was going to be too expensive. Yes, but she right. would have print, she would I mean, have printed yeah. money, and I yeah, think she would have printed money. She would have I been think worth they that. They would have given him her that Tony. Yeah, and that yeah. yeah, that would have been a major event, and I think, quite frankly, that would have been a major triumph too. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, let's face it: if there's one thing that the Broadway's you know Broadway needs is like 
you know, a major event. Because yeah. I don't even think Hugh Jackman was one this time around. No, we'll get to that in a bit, I think, no. too. Which, you know, that mo- that show is making a lot of money. And, like, I know people are so resentful of it. But it's, like, it's a great time. And he's so, like, like the person you're going to beat up on is Hugh Jackman, who's, like, one of the most charming, nice people in the world. Like, that's public enemy number one. Like, in the music man of all shows like (laughs) yeah no it's really it's really ridiculous the way sometimes broadway just cannibalizes itself for the way broadway broadway uh the gate the the gatekeepers yeah yeah yeah, the voices yeah it's true so let's talk about like i think the worst thing i've seen all year (laughs) speaking of tony nominations the next show got a ton of them last week my goodness like my goodness. And then I, we saw it. It's <laughs> par- par- Paradise Square. And I, I just want to say, if I had seen it and it didn't get 10 Tony nominations, including Best Musical and Best Book, I would have <laughs> been like, all right, fine. But awful. Like, how dare they? <laughs> well, Larry Kerwin... <laughs> Larry Kerwin has tried a several times, a few I times, know. to make a musical, and um, has not had success. No, no, he still hasn't had success. <laughs> <laughs> this is like if the if the uh, if Romeo and Bernadette bastardized the Italian, my Italianness. This show bastardized my Irishness. <laughs> um, because I I think the bones of a decent show are there. It's too but many bones. That's maybe one problem in, in the first place. It's too many bones. So it's too many bones. It's just too much show. Mm. And then it's like doesn't have any courage in its conviction. Yeah. Everything so rings and sincere. Yeah, so it's dealing with very. It almost feels like kids' theater in a sense because oh. it's reductive. It's reductive, and it's like it wants to talk about heavy themes like racism and like immigration and like I guess that's it. Um, but it there's some class warfare, I guess. Yeah, class warfare, sure. And but it. It's so unrealistic. Like, it wants everybody to win. It wants everybody to have, um, like, to succeed in everything they're doing. And so, like, the bad guys are really bad. And, like, the good guys, we, like, really want to, like, sugarcoat um, everything for them. doing. It felt like, Karen, do you remember the show Wishbone? No. Okay. It was, like, this little, like, um, what kind of dog was Eddie from Frasier? On Frasier? Oh, he yeah. was, uh, uh, oh, What kind shit. of terrier? It was uh, a terrier, right? Oh, it was... Oh, Jack and Russell I, terrier, Jack right? Russell, yes, and so, I love those dogs. So, Wishbone was like a Jack Russell terrier who would go... He would act out um, one of, like, a book. Like, a famous novel from his... Like, he did A Tale of Two Cities. I just don't remember if he was Sydney or the... or. <laughs> Uh, Charles Darnay (laughs) but like he would be like in the book like he did a Pride and Prejudice and that's what this show felt like a Mm. really shitty wishbone episode Wow. um, without a cute dog 
It's the most ridiculous thing. Yeah, it I has mean, plot points beyond comprehension. Yeah, so it's set in 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, in the Five Points, this neighborhood in Lower Manhattan at the time, and our focus is on the Irish that are living there and the the Black population that is living there as well. And they all sort of mix, like it's Cheers, at the Paradise Square <laughs> Saloon. <laughs> and our Sam Malone is a woman named Nellie O'Brien, or Nellie Freeman O'Brien, played by Joaquina Kalukongo, uh, who was also a Tony nominee last year for Slave Play. Um, She is married to an Irishman. Um, His sister, Annie, I think is her name, is married to a uh, black pastor. Um, And they all sort of run the saloon. Um, And then... Annie's nephew, who is Irish, comes to New York and lives with them. At the same time, this fugitive slave, played by Sidney Dupont, um, also kind of ends up staying there because instead of continuing his way on the Underground Railroad to Canada, he decides he wants to stop where he is so that he can be reunited with (laughs) the woman he loves. And so we yeah. now have we now have this black man and this Irishman, both young men, who are kind of kind of like their arrival is the inciting incident, because at the same time they both they have to worry about being drafted. So um, Nelly has this idea. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's not Nelly. But well, that's the thing. Yeah, they're kind right. of they're kind of gonna do this big dance off at the <laughs> saloon in 1863 dance off, and the winner they will raise so much money it will save them because the like the mean politician from uptown keeps like charging Nelly with breaking all of these statutes and fining her. So to pay off all that and then provide the lucky winner of this dance off with $300, which is essentially like a year's pay that will be enough that the winner can like buy their freedom and not have to be conscripted to serve in the war. And all of this allows us to do a lot of dance. There's a lot of um, like African inspired, like Juba dancing, as well as a lot of Irish dancing. Um, I mean, it's, it's like like just shy of river dance practically by the time you get to the beginning of act two it's just it's highly implausible and doesn't really tap into the gravitas and the pain and the fear of what's going on because like these people could all lose everything in a second and yet the show wants you to feel joy and camaraderie instead well, I mean, the whole. I'm sorry, Karen. Well, I was just gonna ask: Is this like based on an an actual like was there was there a real party square where yeah. you actually yeah had a community yeah supposedly there was of yes. Irish immigrants and you know and and black folks living together in this sort of yeah. harmonious community that really yeah that that kind of life did exist and then we're supposed Excuse to believe you, Doug, you forgot a ridiculous plot point is it's that Stephen Foster Stephen Foster. Who like so the show started off with like being it's based on Larry Kerwin um writing a Stephen Foster bio musical, and I guess they took that bit and made Paradise Square into it. So we have Stephen Foster as a character who's like 
slumming it at Paradise Square as their pianist. Um, and that's like totally ridiculous. And a thread point that, uh, like a plot point that, like, falls away. Doesn't need to be there in the first. Doesn't place. need to be there. There's no, so it's like show. it's like Forrest Gump showing up. You know. It is. There's like it like wants to be ragtime in a sense. Yeah, very much. You uh, can like, see the influence. Yeah. And we have like the black community, and we have the Irish and the white immigrant community, but they're not given any. They're not given the same heft. Um, the show's not really interested in the white immigrants. Um, and so it's like, it, we, why should we care if you don't care? Um, like, Joaquina Kulakanga is the lead, but... Sort of a lead. She, dis- she disappears through most of the show. She starts narrating, and then that thread goes away. And, like Doug said, it's like, so the AJ Shively character Owen and the Sydney DuPont character Washington Henry come like come into the story at the, around the same time and we're like, "Oh, this is going to be our ca- these are our catalysts and then we're going to have like two sides of the coin sort of thing." But that doesn't re- they like hardly really like this from the time they that. enter, they're literally competing for the same space because they're trying to even stay in like the same one room at the saloon they end up sharing it they like even have like a mini dance off to try and see who gets the room i mean this it's, is a yeah, real oh, to, oh Susanna. yeah, yeah so happens. yeah and there's camp town races right <laughs> oh yeah yes it's camp town races and but it's, and it's like so this show should escalate to the point where there's a major rivalry between our irish guy and our black guy that will inevitably explode in a climactic way by the end of act two and that just never happens because well, the show doesn't the want they... the show doesn't really want y- you to do anything but but like and root for each of uh, your principles. And well, there are a lot of principal characters here because it becomes like a really, really, really bad version of Dance at the Gym. Yeah. Because like Owen comes, he's like, "I'm gonna do my Irish my Irish step dance," which the Irish step dancing. And the dancing in general is re- are really the best part of the show. Yeah, right. Um, so AJ Shively does his thing, and he's also like one of the better things in the show. Yeah, I yeah, um, I'm very impressed by him in general. He dances, and then so Washington Henry, who's on, who's traveling on the Underground Railroad, leaves five points. Leaves, and then he's like, you know what? I gotta go back so I can dance. <laughs> I don't know how the Underground Railroad worked quite. I don't like quite understand how it worked, but I don't think you would go back to dance. <laughs> yeah, I don't think when freedom yeah, is I mean, a paramount concern, you're gonna go back. To, you would go back go, to, to stomp so at the dance. Paradise Square. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah, and yeah. um, and this is after like the Stephen Foster character has told our very mustache twirling. Vic, um, villain played by John Dawson. Oh yeah, they're like harboring a fugitive slave. So the guy is like, "I'm back. I got to dance." And then they which means everyone off. else in the saloon who knows what's what, even when this guy comes back, doesn't try and escort him out as quick as they can. They're like, "Okay, now you go ahead and dance. Great." <laughs> like, and then they're like, "Oh, and you have to dance again." And the book literally has him say, "But I just 
dance. <laughs> like, like he's like has this meta moment of I see it too. Like, <laughs> yeah, and then and then again, Washington. So Washington Henry leaves after the dance off, and at the end comes back. He's like, oh, I could, there was a, there's a riot at the end. Spoiler alert. And he's like, we couldn't get through New York, so uh, we turned back around. And I was like, you turned back around? You're not in the family station wagon going on vacation. Like, yeah, go to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Keep walking north. Like, <laughs> But, you know, th- again, like, but he has no real, there's no real danger for him. There's no real danger for anybody that we care about. Right. Like, Owen's thing is that he's worried about being drafted in the Civil War. And all of a sudden, they're like, they canceled the draft. And everyone lived happily ever after. And it's like, oh, okay. So there's like, there's no real danger. That's what I mean. It's like, it feels like those young adult novels or like those like historical novels for young adults that, I don't know. I remember them from elementary oh, school. Oh, yeah. The, oh, shoot. I used to know, get them from my like, daughter. Yeah. 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 That, like, everybody's like, not really in danger and they skirt around like they casually mention like racism or other terrible things but don't really go into depth because it's meant for kids like that's what it's like like there's racism but it's like but it's like safe racism safe racism like there's class war like there's class warfare and there's like immigration stories but not really we're like None of these people are really in da- like a danger to our, the people that we're supposed to care about. No, um, and there's this big 11 o'clock number that the Nelly character, who really is, can, they call her a lead, but she's so peripheral. She sings this, belts this number out at the end called Let It Burn that you know is supposed to be like a real rabble rouser. And yeah, it brings the audience to their feet, but not in any way that's particularly earned. But she's like, it doesn't make sense in the syntax of the show who she is singing to. There's all this rioting going on outside of the saloon and she starts singing. It's kind of like a, we're not going to take it. I've had it number, (laughs) but she's not singing it to all the people that they're harboring for safety in the saloon. She's not singing it as a rebuke to all of the horrible people who are outside trying to take them down. And then the song is over and time has passed and everyone has sort of survived and moved on. And they just let us know we're we're then in epilogue territory and they let us know what's happened. And it's like, so who was she singing to? Where was she when all of this was going on? What is this number supposed to be accomplishing at all? Like I've rarely seen something that, insipid and lazy it doesn't exist in any sphere in any plane of existence because like i mean spoiler alert like her husband dies he goes off to fight in like an all irish battalion and dies in like 10 minutes into the show which is a real waste of matt bogart um and then she's sort of like i guess she's she like cares about washington henry but like we don't really get any sense of that like there's no sense of like i have this renewed passion to help him like that doesn't matter like i don't know if they're trying to tell us that like she's been so disgusted by like the riot and the trouble that's in five points that she's just like screw it let it burn and let's move on it's like there's no but it doesn't resolve her to do anything immediately after the song concludes 
No, she it just ha- fades. She's not, an active, yeah. she's not an active character in any sense. It's like if Rose's turn just sort of faded out, and then four weeks later she was having brunch with her estranged daughter. Like I don't, <laughs> I can't, I can't even equate it to anything I've I've ever seen. It's 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 a terrible book, and the fact that it got a nomination is awful. It got what? It, I mean, straight down it the line, it got what? Musical, book, score, three performers were nominated. I mean, it's. And, you know, the, the the rumor is, like, they just spared... This show is hemorrhaging money, and yet they spared no expense probably trying to buy as much and I'll, I'll tell nomination you, I won't as they name could. names. I won't name names. But one of those nominations for performances is dubious at best. Well, I'll say it's not A.J. Shively, because I think he's a bright one. <laughs> like, given that they did not nominate any of the men from Girl from the North Country who are all doing, there's at least four of them doing spectacular work. Yep. Dubious. <laughs> well, I mean, and I think that might be a good pivot point to talking about um, kind of the state of what we've seen in general over the course of the season. Because yeah. there weren't many, but we saw a few really good, sophisticated, mm-hmm. well-written kind of shows. Uh at, at the play level, The Minutes by Tracy Letts. At a musical mm-hmm. level, Flying Over Sunset, which was at mm-hmm. Lincoln Center. Uh, and, and Girl from the North Country, which we've seen at a few different incarnations. At the Public Theater and then twice on Broadway, bookending the pandemic. Um, and the the overall responses by people saying, like, we don't get it. Oh, it's doing weird wanna, things. I'm sorry. I want to give a shout out to Dana H., which we did not oh, see on Broadway. Oh, yes. Yes, we saw but it pre-pandemic also. It's a, It was amazing. And... Um, I'm glad it got to be on Broadway for a little while. Yeah. Uh, so all I was really going to say is the the shows that seem to get the bulk of the representation of critical love and uh, ward love um, were just kind of a, a lower in, in the food chain. That we're not looking for sophisticated, high end culture right now. We just want things that that kind of scratch a particular. But that's okay. Itch. Well. Like, I have to say, well, and egg on my face, because I, like, was like, I'm not going to see this. I'm not going to see this. You could see this without me. MJ is the most enjoyable thing I've seen yeah. in a long time. And it's, like, the one show I could recommend to people. Mm. And, like, I know people, you know, I don't want to open up a can of worms. I know what people are saying. But, like, it's not that show. And it doesn't want to be that, you know, it's not really interested in like anything beyond Michael Jackson, this incredibly talented genius. Right. But Miles Frost is amazing. Yeah, he is outstanding. He'd be my pick for for best actor in a musical. Not Um, Billy Crystal? (laughs) I thought you were going to say Billy Crudup. Oh, no. No, yes. even in a musical, you know he would rule. Uh, no, MJ is the one, you know, if people were to ask me for a recommendation, I probably would point them that way. I also did want to say um, the show Clyde's that your daughter Sid saw got a yeah. bunch of nominations, which was really nice. Yeah, I was happy to see that, too. And I, I also, actually forgot to tell her that. <laughs> I loved, um, love is a strong word. I really enjoyed the revival of Take Me Out, probably more than Doug did. Oh, okay. Um, and... I was Luke. I was lukewarm on Jesse Williams um, in life, 
but and but uh after i saw that show i'm like please give him the tony he's amazing yeah i think i said something uh, similar (laughs) when i reviewed it on this podcast but yeah he was uh a a really pleasant surprise just how good he was and what a a natural stage performer he turned out to be yeah and i was glad he got nominated i really enjoyed the carolina change revival um i really enjoyed company more than i didn't um music i really had a good time at music man it's like these are the things like i had a good time at i loved flying over sunset we got to see it twice i listened to the chaos recording a lot girl from the north country is like one of my favorite shows ever um i listened to that case recording a lot um so there were good things um it's just like there were just a lot of things that were like fine i don't think there were too many like downright terrible things on Broadway there weren't this year. there weren't no um because i liked clyde's i liked skeleton crew um there were shows like Chicken and Biscuits that we at least enjoyed, you know? I yeah. had a fun time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I, I think for the most part, it's been a pretty, and and I'll also say, is this a room which we saw at the Vineyard off Broadway, and I really loved it. Um, we didn't see it on Broadway, but I know that show was great. It's like, but it was it was just, I know that there was, a lot of calls for like we need to put things on Broadway. Oh, and we didn't mention Six, which is like a totally fun time. Like yeah, Six was a really fun show. Yeah. Um, like I know people are like, this is our opportunity while we're shut down for COVID that we can put things on stage that on Broadway that we normally wouldn't. Hmm. Um, which... I think that was the exact wrong decision, and I said it, it during the the worst of the pandemic when those conversations began because ultimately it's like then you have a broadway that's like like we still haven't gotten we still have things like mj and the music man which again i really liked but like those exist just to make money and there's a lot of artistry in mj don't get me wrong like christopher wielden did a great job like it's a really well done show um with some pretty great performances, like great numbers, like, but it exists to make money, you know? So it's like, you have that. And then you're like, well, we, we need shows like this for colored girls revival, or we need something like, I don't know, Dana H on stage. It's on Broadway. This is the time to bring these things in. And it's like, yeah, there should be space for these things on Broadway too. But, you still have to make money. And these producers haven't found a way to like broaden the audience, make money, let these shows run, keep them running. Well, they don't have know? enough money to keep them There's running. There's no right? money. There right? That's no. the, I mean, particularly when you're paying what, like upwards of $500 a seat at some of these shows yeah. just tells yeah. you how, you know, sort of out of control the costs must be that they need to make the, you know, that they're, that they do these money grabs with the hit shows, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, because that's, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, it sort of reminds me of legacy publishing, right? Where like you need Stephen King Mm -hmm. to carry the entire publishing. Right. Tent poles. But there needs to be some sort of some better sense of balance. So, so that the whole thing can stay. 
Except that most of these producers, for the most part, are independent producers still, right? With the exception of like when Disney sweeps in or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And so you're kind of wondering, okay, so what's what's holding what up? I mean, I guess Rudin did that. Scott Rudin did that. He would mm-hmm. produce like, you know, plays that maybe wouldn't, wouldn't be big moneymakers, but he really believed in. And that would be propped up by shows like... Um, Hello Dolly. Like Gypsy yeah. or Hello, sorry, yeah, Hello Dolly. I had, heard, yeah. I had heard a re- I don't remember who told me this. I remember, but I won't say it. That you have, oh, I do remember who told me this. You have to, he would require people to, word on the street is that he'd have to, he'd require people to invest in all his shows. So if you invested in Hello Dolly, you would also invest in A Doll's House Part 2. Right. Um, which, you know, say what you want about Scott Rudin, and like, please don't cancel me on this opinion, but like, he did a lot to bring things like The Humans and A Doll's House Part 2 and Hillary and Clinton and like giving the flick a commercial run off Broadway. Like he seemed to care about new playwrights and like giving them a chance. Um, Yeah. And he gave, you know, established talent, some of the great parts of their lives and built their careers. Let's say Laurie. Well, (laughs) let's say Laurie Metcalf. I mean, her two but, Tonys, she's been around 40 years. Her two Tonys are for Scott Rudin shows. Yeah, but, and he was, like, the only one who, try, like, really figured it out. Because now it's, like, I see people who were, like, you know, we failed this show. Or this show deserves to be on Broadway. And it's, like, but Broadway is not a charity. And it's you know, not Broadway, an entitlement. It was, mm-hmm. But it's also not a monolith. No. So it's, like, no. Broadway didn't let, like prom down you know what i mean like for lack of a better example it's like you know people don't want to see things doug and i always talk about like our moms as the audience like as the audience barometer they're like jane q public yeah yeah right because like our moms are both really smart but they're not consumed with the world of theater right so when my mom is like hugh jackins and the music man i want to see that ed harris is doing to kill a mockingbird i want to see that you know, like Oliver Platt's in Shining City. I want to see that. You know, she will go, but she's not going to be interested in like six. Um, and like Doug's mom, it's like I'm always like, would your mom go see this? Would you take your mom to see this? And it's like they're good barometers of like what the public really wants to see. Yeah. So it's and it's well, so. It's, I'm sorry, Karen. Well, I was going to say, I think it's like the the current theater going public, right? Like I think that because there's always been, and this is like, you know, a conversation that I've had for 25, 30 years at this point, right? Um, But you're 21. Yeah, maybe not 30 years, but, um, you know, a very long time about like, Oh, the, the, the new audience, you know, a young audience or this audience or that audience. It's always like you want, they want the audience that's not in the theater already. Right. Like this is right. sort of like this thing that, um, you know, you sort of battle is like you want, they, they want the audience that is not already in the theater. They want the different audience, but the problem is you need to cultivate that different audience. Right. Yeah. right? Yeah. And there is just seems to be an across the board lack of understanding about what that means and how really, really difficult it is to cultivate an audience that does not regularly go to theater, that does not have a real interest in it, that really only goes 
once a right. year, maybe yeah. if it's something like a Harry Potter right. or like some like real event based theater going that they can, that they really want to see. And then they're going to spend their money on that. Um, you know, there, you know, and that, and that could be like for a myriad of reasons. I think for people that are younger, they don't have the money, they don't have the patience. They want to go think to things like, you know, maybe that are a little bit more adventurous or more like a party. They want to go to bars. They want to spend their money at restaurants, you know, and that, and that's fine. Like that's what you do. And maybe they'll go to the theater when they get older because they, they were exposed to it when they were young and they enjoyed it. And, you know, when they hit 45, they'll be like, I'm old. I'm going to go to the theater now. I don't, you know, like who knows? I don't know. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, but, but I think that, you know, to get an audience the, the audience that is not currently in the theater, it takes a lot of money and yeah. outreach and not just money and outreach. It takes time. It does take time. It's an evolution. It takes time. Um, when I was working on, I don't even remember what show it was. Um, shit. I can't even remember what, what the hell the name of the show was. Um, Oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do a quick Google. Um, it was a play about the horse. Was it the one that the war horse playwright had done? No, no, okay. no, no, no. It was, um, oh, here it is. Here we go. Here we go. Here. Um, what was it called? Pure Confidence. Car by Carlisle Brown, who I think is like oh. one of the most amazing playwrights ever that is like kind of an unsung hero. I don't think he's ever truly gotten his due. Yeah. Um, Back in, oh my God, what year was this? Um, 2009. Um, so yeah, uh, it was, it was a pure confidence and it was about a, um, a black uh, jockey horse racing and uh, racing during uh, the civil war. And it was like, actually like a true piece of American history. Um, like black jockeys dominated before the civil war. Yeah. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful play. And we worked with Marcia Pendleton um, to work on getting a black audience in to see the show. And Marcia is absolutely wonderful. She was so great to work with and, you know, trying to like cultivate this new audience. And, you know, it was sort of like, she was like, look, you know, we're going to do our best here, you know, but the, the audience doesn't know you. And so it's going to take time for them to return um and you need to keep producing these yeah. plays like you need to keep producing plays by black artists plays by black playwrights and you know fair point and she is absolutely right but the thing is for a lot of these companies that are sort of like doing this for kind of the first time um it, it's still the same thing you know so like they need to keep doing it because that's how they're going to build the audience. And that audience isn't going to come out the first time, the second time, the third time. Maybe they'll come out the fifth time. But it's going to take an extraordinary amount of time, which means that people have to be ready, you know, to, to like basically like, you know, hemorrhage money for a while. Yeah. Because they're not going to get the audience that they want. They're not going to get the audience that they're trying to cultivate immediately. It doesn't work like that. Wish that it did, but it doesn't. No, I agree. It definitely takes time. The flip side of that um, is, and I know 
I've talked with each of you probably separately about this is the idea that we were talking about the gatekeepers and a lot of the nonsense that they say is how audiences failed this show or they failed XYZ show because they didn't come out or because it couldn't sell enough tickets for whatever period of time. An audience never fails a show. The, the idealized people at whatever idealized number that you felt was worth it to consider a show like getting its due doesn't actually exist. The show is going to do what it's going to do. And you can Monday morning quarterback. How did we market this timing wise, casting wise, other production choices, however you want. But the idea that because people who have a lot going on in their lives didn't give of their own time and money to come to a show should never be villainized. And I see a lot of that happening this year. I see a lot of, so, you know, the Broadway league was like, we are not going to release the grosses this season because of COVID. But I think what it really was, was like, we don't want anyone to know that these shows aren't selling well. And like, for the most part, I think most of the Broadway shows we've been to have been pretty full, you know, whether they paid for the tickets or not. You know, we were at a show, I don't know, recently where I was like, Broadway is back. Like, everyone's here. And the off-Broadway has been like touch and go. Um, I do notice like more shows are being heavily discounted on TDF than ever before, but still. And then all of a sudden, um, I guess in like March, they were like, we're going to release the grosses now. Mm-hmm. And they released the his, they like released the grosses for like the rest of the year prior, which was a weird thing. Um, yeah, because December everybody was canceling left and right. Shows were closing abruptly, but they, I guess they felt like oh things are were like turning and we feel confident. And then I see on Twitter every week when they release the grosses where people are like, how come no one's going to these shows? No one wants to see these shows. There's too many shows, and. Doug and I always talk about it because, you know, there are people who don't want to come back because of COVID, but a lot of the comments I see are, you know, I used to be able to afford X amount of shows a year, and now when they're $200 at least, I have to be more, I have to be more choosy. Yeah. So it's like, are you going to choose to see like the minutes? No, probably not. Unless you're a big Austin Pendleton fan. Mm Mm-hmm. You're not, you know. That would be um, me going to the minutes. <laughs> I love, I love the minutes. I recommend it. You know what I mean? It's like, are you gonna go see like Clyde's? No, probably not. But will you see Company? Yeah. Will you see Six? Yeah. And like, we can't fault people for what like it's not their fault because there's so many factors for the. I think disappearing audiences. I don't think the like there's too many shows. I don't think it's too many shows. No. I think never there's because it's actually healthy that there's a lot of shows. I think there's not enough audience, um, but yeah. I don't think there's too many shows. And you know, there's other factors. I like. I think one of the factors that nobody talks about that Doug and I constantly talk about is that nobody takes into consideration that a lot of people are still working from home and do not probably don't want to commute into the city at six o'clock at night after working all day at home to see a show doug and i like live in walking distance and don't want to like sometimes you want to drag your ass out of the yeah Yeah. you know like 
if I was coming from Brooklyn still, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to a show in the middle of the week. You know, people left, some people have left the city altogether. Yeah. yeah. Their circumstances have changed. And like, yeah. I don't think Broadway has really adapted to that. I, and I don't think that we can discount the financial part of this. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I mean, honestly, I'm still buying tickets and biggest. yeah. And they're still more expensive this year than they've been before. Yeah. I think, I think that that is the biggest, maybe like, I, I think this is probably the biggest obstacle that are keeping people I think from so. the theater are the ticket prices. Because when you're, when you're dropping 20 bucks for a movie, even though I still think that's highway robbery, it is. but when you're dropping 20 bucks for a movie, like you can kind of be like, it's okay if it sucks, right? Like, right. like it's okay if I hate it. I mean, I'm not going to be happy, but you know, whatever, I'll get over it. Oh, let's go to dinner. If I'm dropping two, three, four, five hundred dollars for theater tickets, you better, I, I better fucking love it. Yeah, because like, that's a sacrifice. Like, give me, yeah. give me all of the things because that's like the one thing I'm going to do for the next six months because it's so friggin' expensive. You know, and these prices have got to be reined in if if they want an audience. You know, if you want an audience that can afford, like the right now, the audience that can afford to go see theater are like Jeff Bezos and Elon yeah. Musk. Yeah. And you, do you know what I mean? It's like that type of wealth at this point. Um, and I think that that is, and that's not the audience that that's not that's not an audience that's going to fill seats. Because, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't know what the answer. You're absolutely right. It's like the audience that can afford to go, or the audience you already had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and, and now you're pricing them out, though. See, that's the thing, too. Well, like, I mean, like, that's right. the thing. We're talking about cultivating the new audience, the next audience, the next generation, but you also need to not alienate the current one, to not take for granted why they were coming and were able to come. Yeah. It's a hard balance, right? Yeah, very. Yeah. It's a hard balance. Like, how do you, you know, I remember it used to be like this sort of joke in regional theater of like programming, you know, you'd have the Shakespeare and you'd have the musical and you'd have, and then you'd have like the one challenging play by the non-white playwright. Like that was like, that yeah. was like seriously how regional theater used to program. And, um, and it was like kind of like, you know, a joke. Like it would be like that that's how they do it and it's ridiculous and whatever. But there was a method to that madness and it was for you know, they couldn't alienate the people, the, their subscribers. Those were right. the, that 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 was the bread and butter. And you know, the fact remains we do not have subsidized arts like they have Absolutely. in the UK. Absolutely. So we you can look to London and go, well, how are they doing it over there? How they're doing it is I can go to the Royal court for 10 pounds, 20 pounds on a Friday night and get a good seat and see a good show. Yeah. And it will cost me. And it is the, it's the price of a theater of a movie ticket. I mean, even um, like the nonprofits here are like the nonprofits are the same price as Broadway. They are. The public charge is 140 bucks. For an off-Broadway ticket, that's a lot of money. Yeah, the public, the people's theater. Yeah. Don't get me started. I mean, That's a lot of money. The, the public that doesn't pay any money in rent or mortgage and has all that <laughs> Hamilton money coming in. Yeah, the public. I mean, we bought a ticket to the Bedwetter at Atlantic. It was 104 bucks. Yeah. Damn. Like, yes, there are, like, if you can figure out ways of 
being TDF isn't cheap anymore. TDF was $23 in 15 years ago for Broadway. I think it's like 50 bucks now. You know, like the music man got raked across the coals this week because they're charging $76 for standing room. And, and, you know, and, and people do have to remember too, that not only is the price of Broadway going up and it's, and, but let's face it, it's been high for a very long time. Yeah. Um, I think just maybe not this high, right? Um, but our costs are going up across the board. Everything's inflated. Runaway inflation, yeah. right? So everything is so so. You know, I'm paying thirty percent more for groceries. That's thirty percent less money I have sure. to go yeah. to the theater that where their prices are inflated to begin with, right? So it's like, yeah. you know, this this is like theater is about discretionary income. Right. This this is not a necessity. This is not, you know, clothes, food, shelter. This is discretionary income. And, you know, if you need to be careful with your discretionary income, like I would venture to guess 99 percent of us do, you know, um, you're you're not going to be running to the theater and paying, you know, even paying one hundred dollars at the Atlantic, which I mean, comparably is cheap to some of these other prices. I still think that that's too much money. It is. And then you're not like I said, it's like you're not going to go to any you're going to be selective. Yeah. Exactly. Like, cause I just, I cannot afford to drop a hundred dollars. And we're talking like, these are, you know, a lot of the New York theater goers, that's like the hardcore ones that like mm-hmm. see a lot. They go to the theater a couple times a week. Yeah. Right. I mean, assuming let's say you just go off Broadway to save a little bit of money. If you're spending a hundred, that's $300 a week. That's, that's $1,200 a month. Right. That's like, that's, that's a bit of an eye popper yeah. when you think about it, you know, like, like, wow, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. Like I can't afford that. That's a, that's, that's like, you know, that, that pays for the roof over my head. I don't have yeah. that kind oh, of discretionary totally. income. I don't have $1,200 left over at the end of the month to like blow that on theater tickets. And I don't see an end in sight. Because, no, you know, like, Hugh Jackman is getting $600 a pop and Bette Miller got 800 and Hamilton gets 800 and there's more and more premium seats at every show. Yeah. Even though like, you know, when they started premium seats were like for the big shows, like produce the producers. And now it's like a strange loop has premium seats. Like, <laughs> like, you know, like company has premium seats. Like why? Like, these aren't hard tickets to get. But they've priced out, like, most of the center orchestra as premium seats. And So does that mean when you show up, like, there's nobody sitting in center orchestra? Because, like, it's too, like, everyone's like, I can't afford that. I'll just go sit in the nosebleeds. I don't know what they do. I don't they probably know. move people down. They, they might, do move some. Some must be papered at some point. I don't know. But I don't know. Premium seats used to be $250, and now they're probably 800 I know the first, like, row at Hamilton, like, the most expensive ticket was at Hamilton because they were, it was, like, 800 bucks because they were, like, Ticketmaster is reselling them for hundreds and thousands of yeah, dollars, yeah. so if you can't beat them, join them. Um, although I think Hamilton, like, you can actually get a ticket to these days. Really? Um, yeah. Um, but 
Yeah, I don't see an end in sight. And I and I don't know what what's going to satisfy people because we can't because I see a lot of calls for like, you know, we should have things like Dana H and like Passover and chicken and biscuits and like is this a room on stage and they deserve to be seen on Broadway and then but nobody is going to take a chance on them you want something tried and true so it's like you can't charge $200 a pop to these things and expect people and to then come. be shocked when and, and then be shocked when they devastated when they don't show yeah yeah, yeah. I was. I had a conversation with um, an artistic director at a regional theater yesterday, and we were just talking about um, "Let the Right One In," um, mm. which was the mm. the Jack Thorne show that was at St. Anne's. We were talking about that in the last episode, right? We were talking about theater. Maybe we were. I was probably, you know, my favorite playwright, Jack Thorne. <laughs> um, and you know, and and I had mentioned I just said something about, you know, I'm surprised it didn't go, you know, transfer to Broadway with the reviews like that. And, you know, we were talking about maybe it was the subject matter, yada, yada, yada. And then I, and then I said, well, you know, if you're going to go to Broadway, you need the tour. Right. And like, how could that show tour? I couldn't see that on tour. And he said, actually it did tour. And I was like, excuse me. And he was like, yeah. So, so what the, the producers did is they took the original production and they toured it to various cities, not, not, you know, not a whole lot, but like, you know, places where it could probably play well, like Houston or, you know, more major, you know, more major cities. And, but they had like a four week run. Like it was a little bit more like a traditional off Broadway run, right? Like where it was like several weeks out and, you know, so it had time to sort of like, you know, lead in and draw an audience and all that. But that was how they toured that show. And I thought that that was really interesting. So it sounded like, you know, and it wasn't at like the big, like, you know, 10,000 seat venue or however big these, you know, these venues are for, for the, the Broadway tours. Um, but, you know, it, but it was, so it was smaller scale, more intimate, probably ticket pricing was a little bit more reasonable too. Um, but, but it toured and it made me start to think like with some of these Broadway shows, you know, that y- y- they put on Broadway and then you go, I don't know if that's going to tour, right? Because it seems like not the thing for the tour circuit. Maybe, maybe there's a new mar- model here for this, you know, for, for, for touring. There are a lot of things that have toured recently that I was, like, surprised about. And so I think there are, tour, like, a tour audience for, so like, the Oklahoma revival is touring. Yeah. Yeah, and oh, my God, my my editor was pissed that she left an intermission. Oh, really? I have yeah. a friend in the cast. Don't say that. <laughs> oh, I, it wasn't the performance. I'm sure it was not the performances. It was just, it was, it was like. Yeah. It was, it was not, like, it was a different kind of Oklahoma. It was a very like, different kind of Oklahoma and it was not what she wanted. And she was like, I just like the old fashioned musical. Give me the old fashioned musical. That's what I want to go see. She was actively pissed that she saw that and she like got up and she left. She was like, fuck this. Like she did not enjoy it. She did not appreciate it. And she said that like most of the audience got up and left too. 
Like it wasn't yeah. just her. So like to sort of say like, well, no, this isn't, you know, okay. Yeah, this is great. We'll put this on tour. Doesn't necessarily mean that the tour is working. And I mean, I guess who cares? The tour is working. They got the money and then they left. Right. I mean, I guess, but I, but how do you, I don't know. I don't know what that does to your trust factor when you bring in a show, when the audience walks out and mass like that and they're just like this is not the show we want to see i guess you're right they have the money who cares but like it's funny because i i see a lot of conversation i have for like as long as i've been so like 20 years now as long as i've been going to the theater it's like people who will say this isn't going to win the tony for best musical because it can't tour like i still say that like <laughs> the road, the road voter, like you know, to use an example from this year, it's like mm, the road voters won't like a strange loop. It can't tour, and it's like anything can tour if you put it on tour. Yeah. Um. It's just you know. Also, it's like these touring houses are huge. It, they're not. You know, the audiences might be a little bit more old fashioned, or they don't go to the theater as often, and they want to see regular Oklahoma. Or they want to see Hello Dolly. You know, they're not really open to... Like, the band's visit's been on tour for a while now, and I'm shocked. Even though One Best Musical, it's like... It's such a small show that... I don't know how well people are reacting to it. It's not my favorite show. Um, But, like, I'm always... Like, surprised... Like I said, surprised at what tours, but... I don't know. I think the last, like, ten years or so... I'd say since once mm. one best musical that it's like mm. we've seen things like like once and Hades Town and the band's visit like smaller things win best musical fun home. I don't know. Well, I guess yeah. Well, I guess my other question too would be then okay, but why why is there this focus of we need to put this show on Broadway so it has a bigger life? Like if it gets like I agree. A special, like yeah, right, there like, are many like, many ways to there's you know, so many ways that it has like you know regional theaters do it. Um, you know regional theaters will pick it up and they'll do it. You know like you have these smaller scale t- tours like um, you know like what happened with um. Right, flew right out of my head. Um, Jack Thorne's awful play. Um, <laughs> yeah, let the right you, one yeah, you let the right one in. Like, yeah, like you have these, you you have these shows, and they do have another life. You yeah, know, I regional mean, theaters do them. You can, yeah. College theaters do them. You know, they come, they do off Broadway revivals. You know, because three years later, yeah. why not? Yeah. So, so I mean, this sort of idea that theater, like, like starts and ends on broadway Mm. is well yeah i mean it's like the christians is one of the most produced plays in the country and wasn't on broadway well yeah lauren gunderson has never come to broadway and she's always like the most produced produced playwright new york can't stand her (laughs) i I mean the new york critics just savage her every time she shows up but you know i'm like lucas nath is one of the most produced playwrights I mean, he's had three Broadway shows, but it's like he's one of the most produced in the country on stuff that never played Broadway, you know? So I think what it is is I think there's this mentality of, like, 
we've always understood Broadway to mean one thing, you know, big mm-hmm. slashy musicals, like these, you know, adaptations, these shows that cost a ton of money, pl- like big extravagant plays with stars. And I think there's a sense that we want to knock those ideas down and like for like Broadway to start gatekeeping and let like let the right one in um (laughs) (laughs) just not that you know to be like you know we can have more diverse shows we can have shows by like artists of color we can have more female playwrights we can have you know we can reshape what it means to be a broadway show Mm -hmm. and that those intentions are all well and good but like if all of these shows fail then producers are going to say look we put on you know we did thoughts of a colored man and it you know closed abruptly not because of money because of covid you know well we tried you know like well we did potus and it didn't get any tony nominations well it got a couple but like you know it didn't really set the world on fire and it's a female playwright with an all-female cast and we tried you know yeah like they're the audience just doesn't want this Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that that was also the danger of doing these, of of like the producers saying, now we can do these edgy plays um, because of COVID. Well, now they're moaning about like lack of audience and no money and all of that. Like, you know, and and you're like, wait, wait, wait. And that was something that I really worried about that like when they sort of started like going, well, we can put all these risky ventures up. And it's fine because we're going to lose our shirts anyway. But now, like, it kind of was like, I don't know. It felt like when we're out of COVID, does that mean that they're going to go back to the surefire hits? It's weird to me that they didn't go to the sh- Like, yeah. remember when 9-11 happened? And mm, it the was comfort like, food of it all. Yeah. Com- like, that's why Mamma Mia tortured us for so long. <laughs> Well, um, no, I mean, yeah, I was, you're right. And I hairspray was did, you know, yeah. hairspray was like a bomb for everybody. And I thought we would do, I thought that would happen. But I think um, COVID sort of got overshadowed by everybody, like, calling for, like, more diversity on stage that it skewed one way. So we do have, like, the comfort food of, like, the music man, which audiences seem to like but the serious theater goers are like i don't want this this is not the show for now and it's like you know but these are the shows that can keep people employed right it's like funny girls doing well and mj is doing well and six are doing well is doing well and it's like these are all crowd pleasers right you feel good after you see them Yeah, they should have found a way to bring as much of the audience back and then try and expand on it and then try and challenge the existing audience a bit more with newer, edgier content. I don't know that the audience is coming back. I don't either. I don't either. I and I don't think we can find out this soon, quite frankly. But well, I don't. Yeah, I was, I was listening to um, my new favorite podcast, Sway. <laughs> And uh, Kara Swisher had on these, um, I don't remember their names. They were other fellow journalists of hers. And um, 
they they did like you know cryptocurrency and like they but they covered you know part of what they covered was the entertainment industry and they were sort of talking about movie theaters and mm. um and it was sort of it was super interesting to have this conversation with them um on the heels of actually like the day before or something like that or like a few days before i had actually had a conversation with uh, i did an interview with a guy who owns a bunch of movie theaters um as well as like live venue theaters um and and it kind of mirrored a conversation that i was having with him that you know movie theaters are kind of dying and it's yeah. going to take like it, you can't have the sort of usual like that usual movie experience anymore because people are just much more happier having that in, at home on their 60 foot, you know, TVs. Or well, yeah, they have TVs an option. They no longer like, have and, a monopoly on entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. And they don't want, and so people are like, nah, you know what? I'm more comfortable at home. And in the podcast um, on Sway, they, they, they were talking about that. And then one of the guys said, well, the, the do you know who's do like what what's doing well is like the live stuff like stand up comedy and music. Did not say theater, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, he said stand up like, comedy and music was selling really really well. It seems like everyone's on tour, like every every band, every com- comedian. They weren't making money for two years, and I thought yeah. that that was really interesting. That it was like that that it was comics because that's kind of well you know because usually the comics struggle to sell at least in new york they maybe don't on the road um i think that that's sort of like the nice thing about touring for comedians is they might actually be able to get an audience from that they can't seem to get in new york which i think also kind of says something i'm not sure what but it does (laughs) say something um you know but it's telling me like it's not that the audience is afraid to go out yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're I mean, selective, the but they're not packed, staying like, in. But I feel like pre-COVID, I mean, I went to theater three, four, five times a week, you know, for years. I'd go to at least a concert a month. You know, I'd see like yeah. maybe 15 concerts a year. And then COVID happened and I'm like, oh, do we really have to go to the show? Like... You know, yeah. and sometimes it's like once a week, and I'm like, oh my gosh, another one. It's so and taxing. Like, <laughs> yeah, and like we've gone to one concert where we sat down and had wine, <laughs> and then we're gonna we're gonna go to another concert where we're gonna sit and have wine, and it's like at the same yeah, place. Yeah, I I want to see Nico Case, but like she's on a weekday, and I have to stand. Like, like there's just and I was talking to another friend of mine who I mostly went to concerts with, and she was like, yeah, I don't even open the like Ticketmaster emails because I don't really care who's playing. And that's how I feel. It's like, there's tons of bands I want to see. I would want to see, but it's like, I got used to spending my time and my money other ways. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly the time. Yeah. I mean, like I have a really busy job and like, even though I'm not at the office every day, it's like, I just want to like sit at the end of the day. Yeah. See, I think that's the thing too, that, again you know was happening pre-covid um and i think it's now getting you know as we're well we're still in covid um but you know as i think it's getting worse now that nobody's paying attention to covid um yeah like like right now i'm working 60 hours a week same yeah 
you know, and like, I don't, I don't have time to commute never, you know, like, thank God, like most of my jobs are, you know, most of my work is from home, but like, I'm basically working 60 hours a week. I don't really have like the bandwidth to get, you know, to go somewhere and see something. Yeah, and the idea and- of actually having to plan it and schedule it just makes like, just makes my blood turn to ice because I'm just like, I don't even want to like, because I don't know how, like, am I going to be exhausted? I very well might be. I mean, you, you know, like, I don't know that I'm going to have like, I'm, I don't know I'm going to have it in me enough energy to like go do something because I'm so fucking exhausted. Yeah. And like I said, it's like, do you want to start your day at like seven o'clock at night? Like you've been home all day working and you've, you're exhausted from working all day. And then you're like, oh, time to go out, get dressed and go out to go to a concert or a play. Like. I don't want to do that. No. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to like suddenly have to commute. <laughs> like, right. Right. And like, you know, again, like I'll go if it's a one-off thing, if it's really special, if it's whatever, but the yeah. idea of actually like doing it all the time again, I don't think so. And I, I didn't agree. even do it all the time at the time either. And again, it was mostly because of my schedule because I would be, you know, I could I couldn't make it to the theater by curtain to go see something. I just I just physically couldn't make it there. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it's like, yeah, I used to like work 9 hours in an office and then and commute. Like commute and go to a show and be home by 11, 12 some nights and you know, I used to commute an hour and a half to Brooklyn back and forth and work go to a show commute back i wouldn't get home till midnight and do it all again the next day and i was like i don't want to do that yeah i found doing less of that i've liked and i don't want to have to necessarily stop that we're like an eight o'clock curtain absolutely not (laughs) oh man i'll I'll take i'll take any seven o'clock curtain we said we said the other day we were like why don't they do more like 10 30 in the morning shows (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we would go to those. I'll be done. I'll be done with the, with the, you know, for the day. Yeah, you just go home and go to bed. <laughs> yeah, ten thirty in the morning. Yeah, are people are are theaters still doing eight o'clock shows? Are, is they are. It's you know, curtains? it's impossible to keep track of when anything is at any time. But there are definitely more shows doing more seven p.m. nights. Yeah, it used to be like seven o'clock was only Tuesday, and right. now I feel like yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or seven. And then the off-Broadway, it's like 7.30, 7. The 7.30, though, is like psychologically there's something about it that I <laughs> that it bothers <laughs> me. Like that extra half hour. It, it feels too late. It still feels too late. Yeah. I think 7.30 feels too late. But the, the way, with the way like, I clock it, it's like, wait, so an hour and a half, or if, if one yeah. act is one hour, it's like, wait, so I'm now looking forward to 8.30 or 8.45 instead of like 9 or 9.15. There's just an odd dissonance that I've never in 20 years been able to it's quite like, get. For me, it's always like an like 90-minute play. Oh, great. And then it's like, excellent. But like hour 40, it's like, oh, no, no, too yeah. long. <laughs> like that extra There's 10 minutes. something about that extra 10 minutes. Like, <laughs> it suddenly oh my God, makes no. it long. 
<laughs> You're just like, absolutely not. I mean, like, I remember, you know, sort of like handing out tickets and to the critics and sort of, you know, what's the running time? And I'd have shows that were 65 minutes. And I mean, the, the sparkle in their eye was astounding. Oh my God, amazing, amazing. I know. It was like, if I'd said 65 minutes, no intermission, they just, it was like Christmas for them. I've probably been one of them at some point. Yes, you have. <laughs> but it's also, you know, like there's been some long things this season. The company is like close to three hours. Oh no! See Funny now. Girl is close to three hours, and Paradise MJ Square is, is right. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Mr. Saturday Night and... was like two forty-five or something. It was another one that didn't, but. Um. Yeah, it's been long. Like the greatest week we had was when we saw the minutes and how we learned to drive back to back, and it was like hour and a half for both, and both started at seven. Yeah, yeah, that was the best week. <laughs> Which is funny because like Tracy Let's plays are he's often very some long. really long ones. Yeah, yeah, he's well, he's brevity. He learned, but well, hey, y'all. Well, theater's going to go badly for me because two, my two favorite movies of all time are becoming musicals next season. So, um, Ooh, which ones? I'll be back to rant. Um, Some Like It Hot and Almost Famous. Right. Oh, my God. Those are like two of my favorite ones, Aww. too. Aww. I don't have high hopes for either. <laughs> I don't either. No. When I heard that, magic, I was like... The magic will not be recaptured. I can, I, can almost, I can almost see Some Like It Hot. I can almost see that. But Almost Famous, I cannot. And they're going to butcher that. They're going to blow that. They're going to blow that. They're going to blow that. The thing about Almost Famous is like... I know they're going to use Tiny Dancer. They said they're using Tiny Dancer. Of course they're going like, to use Tiny Dancer. But... The soundtrack is has some of the greatest songs of all time in it. Yes, and like, I know, and they're just gonna and it, and Tiny Dancer is not one of them. Yeah, I don't. And like one no, of, no, but yeah. then but then it's gonna be an original score of songs that don't measure up that to anything. aren't like yeah, they're not yeah. Simon Garfunkel's America, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's just it's such like a beautiful subtle movie, um, that blowing it up into a Broadway musical is like not the answer and I love Tom Kitt he's doing the score um I think he's great but I don't know and some like it hot yeah some like it hot lends to a musical but it's like the magic there is in like the cast yeah it was in the performances and and Billy you can't improve Billy Wilder's script like you can't do it and I think they're gonna take a lot of liberties probably won't work yeah and i i also like don't know where the audience is for these shows well and then also don't we kind of have a i don't you know what it's late i'm not even going to get into it but yes i think i know i think we know exactly what you mean i don't even want to get into it yes and i'm not sure what else is coming next season but the kite runner the kite runner the musical or i guess the event i should say the event. I think it's a play. But I Rivers Between Riverside and Crazy is coming back. So there's oh, That's that's, that's actually a legitimately great play. That's good. Uh I love Stephen Adley Gurgis. Um but well, I don't know. Alyssa, I want I think I want to have you, you back. Um <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say just you. 
Alyssa, <laughs> just you. Alyssa, I think you can return. Karen and I are starting an almost famous podcast. It's called Of Course I'm Home, I'm Always Home, I'm Uncool. <laughs> <laughs> Introverts unite. Um, yeah, we're, we're not going to the theater anymore. Um, because I think I would, I think I would like to have like a bigger conversation about off Broadway, because I think as much as, you know, Broadway is burning, I think that like, you know, the fucking fire started, um, you know, in the basement of off Broadway and that is a friggin' inferno and, you know, we are going to lose, um, a really important ecosystem, yeah. you know, for, for, for the, not just theater, but also film and television. Um, you know, because what, you know, it's so funny. Another thing I discussed with this artistic director, um, yesterday in our interview was how many really great theater folks we've lost to, you know, especially the playwrights we've lost to prestige TV. Yeah. And like, you know, we talked right. about before with Julia, where like, you've got like, you know, fingerprints of, of really wonderful, you know, playwrights are like all over that project, you know? Um, and so without off Broadway there to nurture the talent, to support the talent, to give the talent the, a chance, right. Where do we, like, what's going to happen? Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like succession took them all too. It's like Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I don't I don't know. And Doug and I were actually saying a couple like maybe earlier this week we were like what happened to like all the like established New York downtown playwrights. Right? It's like we get a lot yeah. of new voices and that's totally fine. But it's like, like, who are these people? Like, and what happened to like, where's Anne Washburn? <laughs> like, like, where is, where are these people? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And why aren't they being produced, you know, in New York anymore? And I don't know if that's sort of like, you know, shiny object syndrome. Mm hmm. Um, with the gatekeepers because they're always looking for new you know they're looking for new and then they're dropping them um you know it was funny one of the um downtown playwrights there was a post going around facebook and being shared and i don't want to call the person out i mean it was public and everything but i still don't really feel comfortable about it because social media still feels somewhat private to me which Mm -hmm. is really stupid considering you know everybody gets canceled um for (laughs) like saying things you know um but this person was sort of talking about how when they were coming up in downtown theater, they would see these um, these other playwrights get like plucked out of obscurity and given like big fancy development yeah. deals with some big fancy theater or something like that. And they became like the next hot thing. And it was like all of a sudden there was this meteoric rise and this person would always feel kind of terrible because here they were toiling and toiling and toiling and they never got that shot. And then finally they gave up and they got a job in, in Los Angeles, you know, and got a job in Hollywood and started working on TV and like turned around, you know, 20 years later and found that this person that was 
supposed to be like, you know, the, the next big thing actually just fizzled out and died and never had another production beyond whatever it was that exalted that person to that, you know, that sort of like, you know, level and, and they never had a career. And now this other person that never got those sort of breaks when they were, you know, in the theater yeah. world is actually actually has a very rich career telling stories it just happens to be in a very different medium um and i thought that that was really kind of fascinating because i used to think about that at the time when i you know we both of us came up at the same time so i knew his work as like this downtown figure who never could sort of like break out of the you know 30 seat theaters right like like they could could never get beyond that and 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 I and I knew exactly what they were talking about with the meteoric rise of some playwrights because I was there for it and I'd scratch my head, and then mm-hmm. and then you know but then I didn't think much of it I didn't I just didn't kind of remember them to know to remember that they disappeared. Hmm. Yeah, like I said, it's like I there's just like an overwhelming amount of like new voices. And then I sort of forget about them. And there's just a lot of people. I can't even think of anyone off the top of my head, but it's like, where, what happened to all these people? Well, there's also a lot of noise, right? I mean, you know, just in general, like there, or, or, or not enough noise, maybe. I don't know. I just, I just always feel like I never know what's coming up because everything is so fractured. There's no way to. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. there's no way to know like what's coming up, what's important, what should I pay attention to? What, I, what's going to be interesting? Like, cause there's just so much of it or not enough of it or so much stuff and not enough like attention grabbing, you know, they, they, they don't know how to capture my attention. And again, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. They all sort of blend together. Like, Playwrights Horizons, for me, has that problem. And they only do, like, six shows a year, but it's like, I don't know. They all sort of feel the same. Yeah, more now, I feel, than in the past. But, that you know. Like, where's Jordan Harrison? What's he doing? Like, I saw, like, all like three of his plays in rapid succession. Where, where is he? I think he was writing for Orange, Orange is the New Black. Black. Yeah. Well, that's gone. <laughs> like, <laughs> Actually, it just occurred to me. I was like, I've never seen Jesse Tyler Ferguson on stage. I saw him on um, oh, log cabin. Log cabin, yeah. But like, best wall took this the year off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, kids, I gotta go to bed. So yes, thanks for joining us all for this jumbo episode. I loved our conversation. Um, just before we go, a special thank you and shout out to our guest, Alyssa Marr. And um, fun fact for all you listeners, tomorrow is our five-year anniversary. So happy anniversary, Ooh, Alyssa. Happy anniversary. Thank you. I, I wouldn't want it. to weather the firestorm that is modern life with anyone else. I know. Aww. Like, like, like. Father John Misty says, I haven't hated all the same things as somebody else since I remember. (laughs) Truer words never been spoken. All right, you guys. Thanks again. Karen, it's been real. It sure has. Bye, Karen. We will be back next week, guys. Bye. Bye.